Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 159, Gelasius II. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Hey everyone, we're still right in the middle of the investiture crisis in the church, which if you remember is this dispute between the emperor and the pope about the role secular rulers have in appointing bishops and and giving them their own power. Which power was higher, the spiritual power or the secular? And when we last left off in this crisis, Pascal II had kind of given in and signed a document called the Privilegium. And then he had pretty quickly repudiated it, uh, which then led to the emperor Henry V coming to Rome and driving Pascal out. And then Pascal died in 1118, and that just added fuel to the conflict. And even the election of the next pope, Gelasius II, who we're talking about today, is going to be violent. First, though, we got to talk about the man himself. He was born John of Gaeta, the son of a noble family from, you guessed it, Gaeta. His father died when he was young, and he was brought up by his mother and his uncle, who destined him for a life in the church. And this is something we've mentioned in passing, but it's useful to note now that oftentimes in these noble families, children were given to a monastery at a very young age to be raised and educated by the monks and eventually become a full-fledged brother, or if the family had great connections, to be an abbot or even a bishop. So John was educated from an early age in the Abbey of Monte Cassino, the heart of Benedictine monasticism, which at this point was going through its golden age under the abbot Desiderius, also known, from our knowledge, as Blessed Victor III. Monte Cassino was the heart of learning. It was full of cosmopolitan thinkers and books and art and architecture. And John was a particularly good writer and a historian. And at the monastery, he helped transcribe and collate papal history. So we can thank him so much for his work because it's helped make this podcast possible. Now, in 1086, when his abbot Desiderius was elected Pope Victor III, he brought John to work in the Roman bureaucracy. And when Blessed Urban II succeeded Victor III, he made John the chancellor of the Diocese of Rome. Now, Horace Mann, the historian, notes that part of the reason why Urban II chose John was that his writing style was so good. Apparently, in the old days, back as far as Leo the Great, there was a particular Roman curial style. It was almost poetic, with some of the papal documents being written in verse. And Urban, who wanted to kind of resurrect the glories of that type of papacy, the papacy of Leo the Great, he brought John into the chancery to resurrect this papal writing style. Now, this style hadn't completely died out, but it really was shoddy compared to the olden days. And so John really made use of it again. Now, another thing he can uh, he did, which we can be very grateful for, is he popularized in the Roman Curia the use of lowercase letters. Now, lowercase letters had been around for a couple centuries. Uh, You may have heard in history class about Carolingian minuscule, which is one of the first widespread adoptions of lowercase letters, but they weren't present in Rome. And the reason why was lowercase letters were originally developed by monks who were scribes as a quicker and easier way to write. You can write much more fluidly in lowercase than if you're writing all in uppercase. And so what basically happened is the uppercase letters gradually got merged into these lowercase letters just to make the scribes work a little bit easier. Well, the Roman Curia 
they, if anything, don't break with tradition. And tradition had been that Roman letters were just uppercase. And these newfangled letters, they're clearly not acceptable because they're breaking with tradition. But with John at the helm, he was able to bring about this use of modern scribal practices, use of lowercase letters, and the quality of scholarship and writing in the papal curia increased dramatically. Now, John served as the Archdeacon of Rome, the Cardinal Deacon of Santa Maria in Cosmedin, and Chancellor throughout the Pontificate of Urban II and Paschal II. In the papal court, John was known to be more of a moderate, and while there were other voices who wanted a vigorous policy against Henry IV and Henry V, John tended to be a little bit more subdued, to the point that several people, when they heard about his election as Pope, they were quite dismayed. Couldn't they find someone better? Which brings us back to the present time in our story. And so now things are going to get a little crazy. So when Paschal II died, Henry V, the emperor, was away from Rome. Now he heard about this and he hurried back to see how he could influence things to his advantage and his forces controlled the part of Rome which had St. Peter's. Trastevere, the neighborhood across the Tiber from the majority of Rome, which has always been very loyal to the Pope, and the remainder of Rome was in the hands of Paschal and it was there that the papal election was convened. The cardinals decided to meet at a monastery on the Palatine Hill, which is now the church of San Sebastiano a Palatino. And this area was controlled by the castles and fortifications of the Frangipani family, who were always very loyal to the Pope, and they fought on his side throughout the centuries. But what, for whatever reason, the current head of the family, Chinesius Frangipani, was not happy with the results of the election held on his turf. The cardinals met and unanimously elected John of Gaeta, who took the name Gelasius II. And as soon as the good news was announced, the Frangipani troops stormed the monastery. Chinesius Frangipani himself picked up Pope Gelasius by the throat and dragged him by the hair and locked him in a dungeon. Now, the rest of Rome wasn't going to let this stand, so several nobles attacked the Frangipani and asked for the Pope back. And they surrendered and they begged for mercy from the Pope, who granted it, and then let the Pope go. Gelasius was then immediately brought to the Lateran, where he was crowned, and plans for his consecration as bishop were begun. He wasn't yet a priest, and at the time, priesthood ordinations only happened on certain days of the year, called Ember Days. So he had to wait until then to be made a priest and then made the Bishop of Rome. Now, in the meantime, Henry V was on his way back to Rome, planning on capturing the Pope and making him repeat the deal he had made with Paschal. But the friends of Gelasius hid him. Then, when Henry's demands were made, Gelasius and his entourage tried to escape Rome by sailing down the Tiber to the sea. But once they got to the harbor, a huge storm whipped up and the ship almost sank. And to make matters worse, Henry V discovered where they were going and sent soldiers to attack the Pope's ship. So there's a storm going on, and from the shore, these German soldiers are firing arrows which were on fire. Now, somehow, this ships escaped from the fiery arrows on one side and the storm on the other, and they, they got out into the sea, but then they beached the ship just up the coast at Ostia. And then the Pope and the others who were with him escaped again, and they had to hike nearly 30 miles through the storm. And Pope Gelasius, who was quite old, had to be carried on one of the younger cardinals back the whole way. Then the next day, the Germans discovered where they were again, and the Pope again had to dash onto a boat on the Tiber, and this time he made it out of the harbor and down the coast to his home in Gaeta. Now finally, once the Pope got to safety, he was ordained a priest on March 9th, and then the Bishop of Rome on March 10th, 1118. 
In the meantime, Henry decided to do what every power-hungry emperor before him had done when the pope didn't give in to his demands, and he decided to make an anti-pope. So he got a guy named Maurice Bourdin, the Archbishop of Braga in Portugal, who we met last week, and he had him elected pope by his supporters in Rome. Maurice took the name Gregory VIII and was installed as anti-pope. Now, I bet after the last couple of episodes, you can guess what playbook Pope Gelasius followed when he was faced with this situation. Hmm, the emperor in Rome with a new anti-pope. What am I going to do? I think this calls for an excommunication and then some military help from the Normans. So Maurice was excommunicated along with Henry V. And then with the help of some Norman troops, Gelasius made his way back to Rome. But his attack was not totally successful. He managed to regain part of the city, but once inside, he was attacked again by the Frangipani, and he was forced to flee for his life to St. Paul outside the walls. So this warfare in Rome was just too much for this elderly man who had suffered already most of his pontificate. Both the Pope and the Antipope left the city, with Pope Gelasius going to Pisa, where he consecrated the Cathedral Church of Pisa, which was newly built and didn't yet have his fa- its famous uh, leaning tower. And then from Pisa, he went to France. But by this time, it was clear that all his suffering had really taken a toll on Gelasius. He met with St. Norbert, who was the founder of the Premonstratensian canons, or the Norbertines as we know them today. And then he asked to be taken to Cluny to die. And there in the midst of the monks of Cluny, Gelasius prepared to meet his Lord. On January 29th, 1119, Pope Gelasius II died. He was buried in the Abbey Church of Cluny and was succeeded by an unexpected choice, Pope Callistus II, and we will talk about him next week. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on iTunes. Thank you and God bless you.